Judges 16. A uh, little bit of context here. What has happened is Israel has entered into the promised land and uh, God gave them some commitments to them when they entered the promised land. He said, if you will drive everybody out and finish the task of driving everybody out of the promised land, I will secure your borders. And if you do not intermarry with others, I will bless you. I will keep an army from you, from other nations. I will protect you. All you will have to do is demonstrate what it looks like to be in a right relationship with me. Well, Israel didn't finish the job. The conquest conquered most of the promised land. God gave them the command to flush everybody else out, and Israel didn't bother to do that. And that became a thorn in their flesh right away. Several of the neighboring countries were countries that were intermarrying with them and causing them challenges and troubles. There were the Ammonites and the Moabites, and there were also the Philistines. And that's uh, the, the group of people that we're going to be looking at in Judges 16. What God would do is he would use these nations to uh, discipline and chastise Israel because of their disobedience to the Lord. It only took Israel one generation into the promised land before they started heading south in just about everything. And so God would bring these nations in and he would oppress them and discipline them through the oppression of these nations. But he would raise up a man, usually, cyclically, he would raise up a man in Israel to deliver them from the nation that was oppressing them. And one of those people that he raised up was Samson. And Samson was a man who had a, a Nazarite vow. Uh, since he was a youth, he had a vow that he would never cut his hair, and his hair was the source of his strength. And the Lord was using Samson to deliver Israel from the Philistines. The Philistines were located geographically to the southern part of Israel, and so their, their entry into Israel was from the south, and the tribe of Dan and some of the other tribes that were down there, the tribe of Judah. And uh, so the Lord raised up Samson. What we're going to look at today is heart shepherding that Samson wasn't doing and what it cost Israel. So Judges 16, the story picks up. Samson has actually been very successful to this point. Um, he has avenged Israel and avenged himself on the Philistines. And so what we have here at the beginning of chapter 16 is Samson is not in a good place. We read in verse 1 that Samson went to Gaza and he saw a harlot there and he went into her. So that tells us where his heart shepherding is. And Samson at this time is already the judge of Israel. He's the judge of Israel. He's leading Israel. And here he is going into a harlot. So this is the first sign that his heart shepherding is not in a good place. We drop down to verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. He didn't marry her. He just loved her. So we understand what that means as well. And so you see that the lords of the Philistines recognize that Samson is a problem for the Philistines. So they come to Delilah and they, they entice her with, with an offer of money. They say, if you will give us the secret to the power of his strength and why he has so much strength, we will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So we're going to see three attempts on her part to get Samson to reveal the secret of his strength. She comes to him in verse 6 and says, Please tell me where your great strength is and how you may be bound. So he gives her a story. Find me with fresh cords that have not been dried. Then I'll become weak like everybody else. The next verse or two shows that that wasn't the truth. His strength was not discovered at the end of verse 9. So in verse 10, she comes to him again and she says, You've deceived me and you told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. So he makes up another story, this time involving new ropes. Okay, so you've got to give me with new ropes. So she binds him. And we have to just stop and realize what Samson is doing here. He knows that he's the judge of Israel. He knows that he's the leader of Israel. He knows that he has a position that's very, very important. And here he is toying with the idea of how to reveal the secret of his strength, the strength that is actually delivering Israel from the Philistines. And he's, he's toying with the idea of how to, how to give that secret away to somebody. And, of course, he's giving it away to a woman. And so he gives her another lie. And that, that story is not successful. We see in verse 13, she says to him, up to now you've deceived me and you've told me how you can be bound. And now he makes up a third story. But this time he's getting closer to the source of his strength. He says, if you weave seven locks of my hair with a web and fasten it with a pin, then I'll be weak like any other man. So what we see here is a progression. He's getting closer to the source of revealing the source of his strength. 
So verse 14 tells us a little bit more about the kind of relationship that he has with Delilah. He's sleeping and she's right there. You don't have to imagine what's happening here. So there's no hard shepherding on Samson's part here. He has the law. He has God's word. He knows it and he's in a position of prominence. So she goes and fastens his hair with a pin and everything. And we see that his, the secret of his strength is not revealed because his hair has not been cut. You see in verse 15 that he's been telling her that he loves her. Not only does he love her in verse 4, back at the beginning, but in verse 15 he's telling her that he loves her. He has affection for this woman that he's not married to. So there's a lot of really poor heart shepherding going on here. And in verse 16 she's pressing him daily. He's remaining in a situation where his proximity to sin is very near. It's very close. He's not shepherding his heart. He's not caring for it. She's pressing him daily, and his soul was annoyed to death. That is what happens to the human soul when we remain in a situation of sin. We remain in very close proximity to sin. So what do you think happens? What happens is what happens in verse 17. He told her all that was in his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and become like any other man. So he told her everything was in his heart. She knew it. She knows it right away. In verse 18, she saw that he had told her all that was in his heart. And then the story plays out, and he loses his strength. We know how the story goes. So the message is for us today, for every one of us, for me, for every one of us here, we need to be very, very thoughtful and very, very careful about remaining in proximity to sin. If you're in a position of leadership in your home, if you're in a position of leadership in any ministry, if you're in a position of leadership in a group of guys that meets together, if you're unmarried and you, you meet with guys, uh, if you're in any kind of position of leadership, leadership over your own heart and your own home, we need to be very, very sensitive and very, very careful to remaining in close proximity to sin because it clouds our judgment. And eventually what happens is the sin will overtake us. No one is going to, going to withstand the attempt of the flesh and the appeal of the flesh. Uh, throughout all of their lives. So what I want to do today is just encourage each one of us to be very wary and very mindful. This is more of a, an encouragement, not what we do when we're sitting down with our Bible in the morning. That's always important. We want to keep doing that. But this is more or less of how we take what we've been learning on Sunday mornings, how we take what we've been learning from our time in the Word in the mornings or the evenings or whatever, and we carry it with us throughout the day and we're sensitive to the Lord's leading. Um, because what this will do, well, this will bring negative consequences to any, any ministry involvement that you have. And this was hard on Israel. When Samson fell like this, things did not go well for Israel immediately following. Um, and so here was a man who had the opportunity to be used by the Lord to be the deliverer of, of Israel. And for a time he wasn't, and he wasn't because he remained in close proximity to sin. So just an encouragement to you guys for that. We're going to be talking about God's design for biblical repentance. So if you have your Bible with you, would you just turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7? A lot of times in life, uh, we run into patterns of sin in our life. and we, we begin to engage in patterns of sin. And we understand that it is right for the believer to repent from their sin. And repent means to turn and, and leave your sin. And uh, we know that. But God in his goodness has given us a design to measure how we are doing in our repentance. He's actually given us instructions as to what biblical repentance really looks like. This is really helpful because um, at a 10,000 foot level, we look out and we think sin, this is something I shouldn't do. And when I, when I do engage in sin, I need to repent from that. And that is absolutely right. What we have here in front of us is more at the two foot level of what the believer needs to be doing to actually accomplish biblical repentance in their life. So I know that I need to pray before we get started. So let's do that. Let's ask God to bless our time that he will use his word in our lives. Lord, again, I thank you for my friends who are here this morning. I thank you for the privilege that we have of fellowshipping together in the body. Lord, how sobering it is for us to remember uh, the days when we were not in the body of Christ. We were estranged from you, alienated from you, and running blindly towards a destruction that we had no idea was coming. And Lord, you saved us away from that and you purchased us with the blood of your, your son, Jesus Christ.
You gave him to us as a savior and you brought us into the body of Christ. And Lord, we have the ability to walk in newness of life and our sin is no longer mastered over us. And we're so thankful. But Lord, we still live in this body of flesh and we are weak and we, we live in such a way that demands and requires <coughs> repentance. And I pray that as we, we look at what biblical repentance looks like, that you would grow us in our understanding of repentance. I pray for each man here. Lord, I pray first for myself and I pray for every other guy as well who's here that you would inform us, you would strengthen us, you would fortify us in our understanding of what repentance looks like so that we might live lives that are more pleasing to you in our homes and in ministry and in work and every place else. So we give you this time and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. What we're going to do today is we are going to be looking, as your notes say, at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. But there's something that is very, very important to do whenever you want to focus in, laser focus on a verse. You have to understand where the verse sits in the context of things. So in your notes, uh, the first of the four pages is really just a context for us. We want to understand how it was that Paul got to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. And so this is, I, I hope, is helpful for you guys. I, I don't mean to insult anybody by, by just walking through how it is that Paul got to this. Um, Paul was on three separate missionary journeys. And in the second missionary journey, um, the first missionary journey was basically over in present-day Turkey, and then he turned around and came back to his sending base in Antioch. The second missionary journey and the third missionary journey, he traveled across the Aegean Sea into what is present-day Greece. And on that second missionary journey, he stopped, among other places, in Corinth. He started in the north in Philippi, moved down, uh, went through Thessalonica and Berea, and then he moved down to Corinth. And he was there for 18 months on his second missionary journey. He ended his second missionary journey, went back to Corinth, uh, sorry, went back to Antioch, which is just north of present-day Israel. Then he set out on his third missionary journey, and he settles in Ephesus. And it was when he was in Ephesus on his third missionary journey that he actually wrote the first of his several letters to the church in Corinth. And that first letter was a letter that was lost. It was not inscripturated, is a better way to put that. And he was, um, he was addressing issues. Um, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter. So in, in the first letter to the Corinthians in Scripture, Paul is referencing a previous letter. And he wrote to them addressing sin issues. So the Corinthians write back to him asking clarifying questions. And 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul is writing answering those questions. He's got questions about marriage. He's got questions about the church. He's addressing divisions in the church. This church had a boatload of issues, and Paul is, is answering those questions and addressing issues. There was questions about his authority and lots of other things. There was a misuse of the Lord's table. So that's what the purpose of 1 Corinthians was. So he writes, those, he writes 1 Corinthians to answer those, uh, answer those questions. But he comes to learn that there are false apostles in Corinth. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 11. He brings it up at that point. But, but he learned about that after writing the first letter. And so he travels to Corinth from Ephesus for a painful visit in which he wants to address these, these false teachers. The problem is when he gets there, he's got his message and he's addressing the false teachers with the truth. He wants to, to purge the church from this false teaching. But the church in Corinth does not come around him and support him. There were those within the church who did not support him. And Paul is grieved by their lack of support. Um, so he writes a letter that causes much sorrow. And he sends Titus to them. And Titus learns how the church in Corinth is doing. And Titus comes back to Paul with a good report that the church has actually repented well. And um, Paul writes 2 Corinthians after Titus returns to tell them that they are doing well. So that's the setup. Um, that's what we're going to be talking about. And so today what we want to look at is the Corinthians' repentance. We're going to start by looking at the, the verses that immediately precede verse 11. We're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10. And biblical sorrow, uh, sorry, biblical repentance requires a sorrow that is according to the will of God. There are multiple ways to go about being repentant. And there's multiple ways to be sorry. But there is one way to be repentant and to have sorrow that is according to the will of God. And it's a sorrow that leads to repentance. 
verses 9 and 10 say, I now rejoice, not that you are made sorrowful, but that you are made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So what's in front of Paul, what's big on his mind here, is the idea of sorrow or being sorrowful. And the question really in front of us is what kind of sorrow is according to the will of God? Paul tells us in verse 9 that um, it's a, a sorrowful nature that brings you to a point of repentance. So what Paul is really encouraged by here and what he wants people to be sorrowful over and the sorrow to produce is repentance. So um, the Greek word for repentance talks about a change of heart and a change of life. It talks about an interchange at a heart level, your disposition towards a sin. It talks about an outward change that actually produces a change of behavior, a change of living in response to the sin. And so that kind of repentance is a repentance that brings about a holiness of life that's noticeable to those around you. So you notice what Paul doesn't rejoice in here. He doesn't rejoice in a sorrow that causes, um, that cares nothing about a pursuit of holiness. He doesn't rejoice over a sorrow and a repentance that pursues anonymity. He doesn't rejoice over a sorrow and repentance that motivates motivated by some cost that the person will have to endure. The only kind of repentance that Paul is, is joyful about is, is a repentance that brings about a change of life at a heart level and an outward level as well. So there are seven characteristics that we're going to be looking at. Um, we're going to be looking at verse 11a through verse 11g. And each one of those is split up into one characteristic that describes aspects of biblical repentance. And the first one the first characteristic of biblical repentance is earnestness. And this is sort of an umbrella characteristic. It's an umbrella characteristic that applies to all of the rest of the characteristics of biblical repentance. So Paul says, after describing the kind of sorrow that's according to the will of God, he says, For behold what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. And the Greek word here gets to a persistent striving to correct a pattern of sin. A persistent striving. So earnestness is something which is persistent. It's ongoing. It's not a one and done. It's not a little burst. It's something that's sustained. It's the opposite of being indifferent or unconcerned. The ongoing sin intoxicates the man and makes him unable to see the true depth of his sin. You know how it is when you're, you're caught in some pattern of sin or some rut of sin. Um, while you're in the sin, you really don't see the sin the way God sees the sin. You, you see the sin is not being so bad, it's okay to participate in it. Uh, that's not a man who's earnest in his repentance. The man who's earnest in repentance sees the sin for what it is, and he is persistently running and striving away from it. So the first way to, to repent biblically is to have a sustained pattern of repentance in your life. It's not a, a one-and-done kind of thing. So how can you tell when your repentance is marked by earnestness? The way you can tell is when you examine your life and you notice a consistent fight against sin. If your fight against sin is a consistent fight, that's encouraging. Be encouraged by that. Yes, the sin is still there, but there is a consistent fight against it, which should help you understand that, that that's the kind of repentance that is pleasing to the Lord. So that's the, the overarching characteristic of biblical repentance is that it's something that's ongoing the second thing that Paul mentions and I'm using the vocabulary used the terminology used by the New American Standard Version is that biblical repentance is marked by a vindication Paul says what vindication of yourselves after he mentions earnestness he mentions vindication and the Greek word here is all about a defense a defense. And this is a defense that's consisting primarily of the absence of the pattern of sin. The defense the person makes that, that defends their repentance is the absence of the pattern of sin in their life. So you're exonerating yourself by demonstrating a clear pattern of behavior that's away from the pattern of sin. 
It's kind of an, an acknowledgement of the sin followed by a clear pattern of, of living that's contrary to the practice of that sin. So how can you tell when your repentance is marked by vindication? When the evidence of your life reveals that there was an immediate and an ongoing turning away from the pattern of sin. Earnestness is a consistent fight. Vindication is a consistent pattern away from the sin. They go hand in hand. So when you're sitting there and you're looking at your life and you're saying, I've got this sin problem in my life, be really encouraged when there is a consistent fight. And be really encouraged that when there's a pattern away from that sin, when there's an absence of that sin in your life, that your repentance really is biblical. The next characteristic of biblical repentance is indignation. This is a really interesting one because when we think about it, um, at some level, at some heart level, when we engage in patterns of sin, we engage in those patterns of sin because we love that pattern of sin. And indignation is a feeling of anger. It's a feeling of anger over the decision to sin. It's a disgust. It's a displeasure. It's a disdain over the decision to sin. When the sin comes to mind, when the person is thinking about their decision to sin and their entry into the decision to sin, they're indignant for at least four reasons. Four things about his choice to sin rise up in a man that make him angry. And the first is that he has loved what God hates. God says in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God's overarching characteristic is his holiness. And the word holy, I think we, we all understand, means to be separate from. And primarily with God, what, what God's holiness is all about is he is separate from sin. There is no stain, there is no association with sin himself. And so the repentant man is truly repulsed at loving something that God is so separate from. If God has enjoined the man to him and God has reconciled the man to him, the man is, is repulsed. He's indignant over the fact that he has loved something that, that God hates. The second reason, the second cause for a man to be indignant over sin is because he is added to the sufferings of Christ. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, the he here is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we may die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Two things I want to point out about this verse. First is that Christ bore our sins in his body. When Christ was on the cross suffering in place of the believer, all of the believer's sin that they would commit entered into his body. And every one of those, those sins were an offense against God, an offense that's beyond our ability to comprehend how great it is and how big it is. But when we make a decision to enter into sin, God in his justice must avenge himself against that sin. So the believer is adding to the sufferings of Christ because of his decision to enter into that sin. And anyone who loves Christ would be angry with themselves for doing that. So it is right and it is good to be indignant over adding to the sufferings of Christ at the cross. Jesus was responsible for bearing the Father's full anger against all of our sin. So when we add sin, when we enter into sin, we're adding to the sufferings of Christ that he otherwise would have suffered were it not for that choice to enter into sin. But the believer is also indignant over the fact that he's deceived himself. He's deceived himself into believing the lie that experimenting with sin or participating in sin will be more satisfying and fellowship with the God who saved him away from sin into fellowship with himself. James 1.14 says, Each one is tempted when he is enticed and carried away by his own lust. Um, God is very clear that he himself is more satisfying. He is more permanently satisfying. The satisfaction is more enduring than the fleeting pleasures of life. 
The man knows the sweetness of fellowship with Christ, and he's angered that he invested himself in something that was never designed to satisfy him in the first place. And finally, the man is indignant over the fact that he has imitated spiritual deadness. You guys know the first few verses in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's writing to a church in Ephesus. These are strong believers. Paul was their pastor for three years. He was a good pastor. and So they knew their theology. And he writes to them and he said, You were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. And you walked according to this world, the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature, not we are by nature, we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest. And so his choice to indulge in the sin makes him appear to the world as if he's still in the same condition that he was when Christ saved him. So if that's the disposition of the man who is indignant over his sin, then what emotion is characteristic of the man who is not indignant over his sin? The man who is not indignant over his sin looks at his sin and he's fond of his sin. He has a fondness. He has a warmness towards his sin. He thinks about it with a positive association. He looks back and at some level, at his heart level, he's saying, that was great. So the man who's indignant over his sin by no means looks back on his sin fondly and says, oh, that was a great experience. He looks back on his sin and he's indignant about the whole thing. So how can you tell when your repentance, when your repentance is, is marked by indignation? The way that you can tell is when you think about your sin the way God thinks about your sin. You're indignant over your sin when you're thinking about sin the same way God was thinking about sin when he dealt with it. Okay? He dealt with it at the cross 2,000 years ago. He understood everything that we all would do. He sees all of life and all of human history outside of time, so he, he measured everything we would do. He gathered together all of his vengeance against it. We have an indignance over our sin when we think about that the same way God does. We jettison all thoughts of fondness and all associations with fondness when we, when we think about sin. So if we want to understand how God thinks about sin and how he feels about sin, we need to be reading his word where he tells us how he thinks and how he feels about sin. Just an encouragement to every one of us, myself included, stay in scripture. Keep feeding yourself a steady diet of God's word as consistently and as regularly as you can. We've provided reading plans. Uh, if you're on a reading plan, stay on that reading plan. If you're not on a reading plan, get on a reading plan. It's some design to keep you in God's word all the time. And the reason why, at least as it relates to us today, is because that's where we find out what God really thinks about sin. And we grow in our indignance over sin as we grow in our ability to think the same way about our sin that God does. I know that I need that. I read the word and I find out how God feels about sin and I say, oh, right, I'm not there. Help me, Lord. Help me with that. Fourth characteristic is fear. This is a word that is really often misunderstood. Paul says, what fear? And he's talking about a literal fear here. This is a healthy reverence for the one who is most offended by our sin. God is way more offended by our sin than, than we are or that anyone else is when we sin against him. The kind of fear we're talking about here is not the kind of fear where we're scared of God, that he's going to hurt us. The believer looks back to the cross and they understand exactly what Jesus did on the cross, that he was the propitiation for our sin, and that in doing that he satisfied all of the Father's wrath, the very terrifying, horrible wrath of God. Jesus satisfied all of that. So this fear has nothing to do with being scared of God. Instead, what this is, is this has everything to do with a sober disposition towards the sin based on an accurate understanding of God's character. When you read your Bible and you're informing yourself about God's holiness and about his righteousness and about his justice and about his vengeance, that grows your sober assessment of God and it grows your, your right understanding of sin. 
A Christian knows that God disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, 11 shows us this. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness. The believer is sobered by the way that the Lord will deal with them to train them away from their righteous, their unrighteous, sinful living. The believer is sobered by that. They don't want to go through a process of being trained away from sin. They'd rather not sin in that way in the first place. So biblical repentance assesses God's character in the way that he, he deals with sin, in the way that he teaches and trains people, and, and grows us in our desire not to want to offend the one who's told us how sinful and how offensive that behavior is in the first place. So how can you tell when your repentance is marked by a biblical fear of God? The way you can tell that your repentance is marked by a biblical fear of God is when you're sobered into a holiness of life as a result of examining God's character. When thinking about God's righteousness and God's holiness and God's justice and his judgment, his mercy and his kindness and his love and all of those things prompts you and spurs you on to holiness of life, that's biblical repentance. That's the right kind of motivation for repentance. So again, this is a really good plug for time in the Word. That is how we learn about how God feels about our sin. It's also we learn about God's character itself. In my reading plan, um, I've been going through, in my reading plan, it has me in one psalm a day, roughly. I read Psalm 33 this morning. But just a couple of weeks ago, I read Psalm 19. And uh, it's pretty hard to get through Psalm 19 and not come away with the idea of the grandeur and the holiness of God. The heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Um, it's pretty hard not to be sobered by that. It's, it's pretty hard to, to get up from that and be unaffected by that. And That was really helpful for me in my pursuit of holiness of life a couple of weeks ago. The fifth characteristic is a longing. Um, the word here talks about an eager desire or a strong affection. And what the desire is for, the desire is to restore the relationship that has been harmed because of the sin. The person who's repenting biblically understands that there's, there's a cost to that entry into sin. And that cost comes first and foremost, not between ourselves and others, first and foremost between ourselves and God. To have a proper understanding of biblical longing, we need to see the effect that sin has on a relationship. And so what we want to do is we want to head back to the very first pages of our Bible to see the effect that sin has on a relationship. The first example of sin, and that's Adam. Adam's by himself. Eve isn't here yet. And the Lord recognized that no helper was found who was suitable for Adam. So Adam is caused by the Lord to fall into a deep sleep. And I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. While Adam was in that deep sleep, the Lord fashioned into a woman the rib which the Lord had taken from Adam and brought her to Adam. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is actually praise from Adam to God for creating someone who would be his helper suitable. Adam didn't give this praise for the rabbits or the dinosaurs. He gave this praise because God made a helper suitable for him. So Adam has a really good, close relationship with the Lord. That's at the end of Genesis 2. You read about three more verses, and you get to the beginning of chapter 3, and Adam has now entered into sin with Eve. Verses 1 to 5, the servant, not the servant, the serpent. <laughs> wrong. <laughs> Let's try that again. The serpent. Verse 1 through five. The serpent was more crafty, more cunning than any other. And so he deceives Adam and Eve into sin. And they sin and they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam had done a good job. He had instructed Eve and he told her everything about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God gave him that information before he, he gave him Eve. And so it was Adam's task to teach Eve and he did a good job. And when the serpent comes to Eve, Eve knows that she's not supposed to eat from the tree. So Adam's done a good job. He's had the right kind of relationship with God that he taught his wife the things that the Lord instructed him. 
but they do fall into sin. They sin together and they recognize their sin. Verse 8 is where we want to focus here. You look at the, the consequence of their sin. Adam's hiding from sin. He's hiding from God. They hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is what sin does to a man's relationship with the Lord. He's removing himself from fellowship with God. Just a few verses earlier, he's singing these praises to God. And here he is a very short time later, after entering into sin, he's now hiding from God. And so at a basic level, that, that's where we see most clearly the consequence of sin. There's no other human beings in play here. There's no other systems in play here. There's no work in play here yet. So there's nothing else to confuse the issue. You have two people, you have instructions, and you have God. And you see at a, at a base level what, what happens. There's nothing else taking place other than people sin and their relationship with God suffers from it. I want to see another example from the Old Testament, from another Old Testament saint, David, of what sin did to him. We all know about his sin with Bathsheba. We looked at that a month ago. Um, he's supposed to be out at war. He's on the roof of his his palace, and he sees Bathsheba. He enters into sin with her. It's not good. David writes Psalm 32 after Nathan had come to him and confronted him with his sin. And David talks about what had happened after the sin before Nathan came to him where he really hadn't addressed the sin. And he tells us what happened. He tells us in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was drained away. This is what David's sin and being quiet about his sin and not repenting from his sin did for him. His body was wasting away through groaning all day long. That is not a close relationship with the Lord. That is not the man who's after God's own heart. That's not the, the fruitful life that God designed him to have as the king. So for the believer, sin compromises the sweet fellowship that he has with his creator. But where does this longing come from that the believer who's repenting biblically has in his mind? That longing comes from remembering the gospel realities. The believer understands that he was once alienated from God by his own sin. He understands that he's been reconciled into a peaceful relationship with God through the blood of Jesus. So he longs to regain the close fellowship with God that he once had before he entered into his sin. After Nathan came to David, David acknowledged his sin. And he, he writes verse 5 in Psalm 32 after describing the period before Nathan came to him. Verse 5, he said what happened afterwards. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. That's verse 5. Two verses later in verse 7, we see the result of that confession and that turning. We see a full restored relationship. He says in verse 7, you are my hiding place. I'm not hiding from you. I'm not hiding my sin from you. I'm hiding in you. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. So we need to ask ourselves a question here. And the question is, um, what are some signs that your fellowship with the Lord may have lost some of its closeness? And the answer might be that there's a lack of a desire to be near the Lord. And that's reflected in an unwillingness to confess the sin and be honest with God about the sin. Or a growing indifference to the sin. You've been in the pattern so long, you just kind of get used to it. You don't think it's something that really needs to be brought up anymore because it's just pretty regular stuff by your own life. So how can you tell when your repentance is marked by a longing? It's when you're dissatisfied by the lack of closeness that your sin has brought about in your relationship with the Lord. Right? Because sin does that. We saw that in Adam's life. We saw it in David's life. It does the same thing to the believer today. It, it, it produces, it doesn't destroy the relationship, but it, it produces some kind of separation, some kind of harm comes to the relationship where there's close fellowship that once was there that's not there anymore. And the believer who's repenting biblically is the one who's dissatisfied <coughs> with being in that condition. He doesn't want to stay there. He wants to turn from that. Got two more to go through. The next one is, is zeal. The believer who's repenting biblically uses zeal. 
And, uh, you know, zeal can be misunderstood. You can see a guy and he's just ignorance on fire. He's going pedal to the metal and he's just running. That's not what we're talking about here. Um, this is a passion that is actually motivated by two things. It's motivated by love and it's motivated by hate. It's motivated by love for that which is good and it's motivated by hate towards anything that brings harm to your relationship with God. So um, we see this in the example of Paul. I mentioned earlier that he had sent Titus to the church in Corinth to see how they were doing. And Paul is really encouraged by the message that Titus brings back. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7. God comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which with, with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. The church in Corinth had a love for Paul. They had a love for his place in their life. They recognized that he was their pastor for 18 months, and he had sustained them. He had brought them into the kingdom of God. He had, had gospelized them, and they loved him. They understood rightly who he was, and they understood also the harm that came to their relationship with him because they didn't come to his aid when he was there earlier trying to correct the false teaching that was in their church. And they hated that. They hated the consequence of that. And so when Titus went to visit them, he visited them and he came back with a report that they actually had a zeal for Paul. They had a desire for what was right and good. And they, they hated what they had done to Paul. They were grieved by it and they loved Paul and his place in their life. So how can you tell when your repentance is marked by zeal? It's when your love for God provokes a hatred of that which is offensive to God. You, know, you love God and you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. And you hate anything that would harm your relationship with God. You love God, you love the closeness and the nearness to Him and you hate the things that would draw you away from God. One of the best ways to be zealous for the Lord is to utilize every means of grace that he gives you to walk away from sin. And one of the, the greatest gifts God gives us is a mind. He gives us a mind that is capable of remembering things, remembering Bible verses, remembering truth. So one of the best ways we can utilize zeal in our repentance is to commit to memory passages that are very, very helpful to us that address whatever pattern of sin it is we want to be repenting from. So if you want to be zealous in your repentance, write down a list of ten Bible verses where God describes how he feels about some pattern of sin that you've entered into when he describes exactly what that pattern of sin is and what it is before him. And memorize it and commit it to memory and love those verses and renew those in your mind regularly when you're praying before the Lord. It's really helpful to do that. One way that's really, really helpful to be zealous about sin is to think carefully about a passage of Scripture that God gives you. One passage of Scripture that's really helpful for any guy who's struggling in the area of lust is to have a really good grip on Proverbs 5 through 7. Read Proverbs 5 through 7, and you will understand what God says about the adulteress and how on the surface she has lips that are pleasant and her dripping honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But scripture tells you that her ways are unstable and she doesn't know it. She doesn't ponder the path of life. Her feet are going down to death. Her steps are taking hold of Sheol. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 describe Solomon's instructions to his son. He says the one who is naive, the one who goes after her, is lacking sense. And he's talking about the, the results of what happens when you run after her. Being familiar with a passage like that is really, really helpful to pray through in a pattern of repentance. Or whatever your other issue is, it's really good to find out what God says about those things and memorize those passages and utilize them. And the last characteristic that Paul puts in front of the church in Corinth for biblical repentance is actually avenging the wrong itself. This is the last thing he says. He says, what avenging of wrong? And the Greek word here just speaks of accomplishing a vengeance. 
And so what this really entails is applying a consequence that promotes a holiness of life. So the Corinthian church avenged the wrong by inflicting discipline on the one who had participated with the false teachers and had not come to Paul's assistance. Chapter 2, verse 5, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, the majority of the church came to the one who was not defending Paul before the false teachers. And for the repentant believer to avenge a wrong is to introduce a consequence into his life that is designed to promote a holiness of life. I think we're all very familiar with Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have heard it said, you know the Old Testament teaching, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus says, that Old Testament teaching is true. But I'm going to add to that. I'm going to intensify that. I'm going to make it stronger. And I'm going to tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already accomplished adultery in his heart. That's what he says in verse 5, or verse 28 of chapter 5 in, in Matthew. But in the next two verses, he says, if your right hand makes you stumble, tear it out. Sorry, if your right <coughs> eye makes you stumble, tear it out. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. So here's a person who's introducing a consequence into his life that's designed to promote a holiness of life. He's removing the opportunity for sin. That demonstrates biblical repentance. That's not the foundation of his repentance, but it demonstrates it. So how can you tell when your repentance is marked by an avenging of the wrong? It's when you're thoughtful and you're willing to apply a consequence to your life that is designed to promote holiness of life in that area of your life. You think carefully, you pray, Lord, how would be, what would be a good way to respond to the sin that I'm doing here? And so that's God's design for us, that we utilize every means of grace we can to repent from sin, and that we import into our life a consequence that's designed to help us grow in holiness of life. So those are the, the characteristics of biblical repentance. What I wanted to end with, though, was encouragement for us today, encouragement that will help us. Because successful repentance is not accomplished by ourselves. We can clench our our teeth and we can hold our fists tight and we can try to do it, but it won't last very long. Successful repentance requires God's grace together with man's effort. They have to be together. See this most clearly in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, but we're going to look at Romans 6 first. I planned the... The, the schedule of the lessons that we're teaching and build at the beginning of the year, but I didn't know that this would be coincident with us being in Romans 6 on Sunday morning. But it's really helpful because what we're learning from Romans 6 and that whole idea of God jackhammering us out of the cement and concrete that we were held fast to, and I really love that word picture, and taking us out of that and putting it into his marvelous kingdom of light, um, we understand what God has done and what grace has done. The grace reality there gives us the ability to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 4 says, As we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. It was Christ's resurrection from the dead that enables us to walk in newness of life. When Christ entered into death, symbolically and really, our old life came to death. But when he was raised from the dead, when he took his life back up again, all three members of the Godhead collaborated together. Jesus' body is raised from the dead. Jesus actually conquered death, and he conquered the sin that caused the death in the first place. And so we understand that the ability that we now have to walk in newness of life is because of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so we, we now have freedom from sin's power. In Romans uh, 6 verses 6 and 7 says our old self was crucified with Christ in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died to his old nature is freed from sin and so the first step in understanding God's grace is understanding that all the grace is accomplished for us and that is that sin is no longer master over us we have a new master whose name is Christ But we need to just pause for a second and understand that there is a school of thought today that is very dangerous that says that all that you have to do to repent is think about those truths. You just need to sit there and think about how Jesus was raised from the dead, and so now I can walk in newness of life, and I'm done. That's very, very dangerous, because God's Word doesn't tell us that. God's Word tells us that it's absolutely essential that we have God's grace to walk in newness of life, but that's coordinated together with the believer's participation in that. And we see that in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. 
Paul's writing to the church in Philippi. He has a different relationship with this church than he had with the church in Corinth. But he says to them, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he puts in front of the church in Philippi first, you have a responsibility to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You have a responsibility to walk and live in holiness of life. But he helps them understand what undergirds that in the next verse. In verse 12, he said, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work according to his pleasure. God is at work in the believer, but he's at work in the believer when the believer himself is working out his salvation with fear and trembling. God does not have a design for us where we grow in holiness of life when we repent in, or we live in some pattern of sin and then just think about his grace. He has for us to think about that pattern of sin and then to turn and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So our effort together in conjunction with God's grace is what accomplishes this. So there's a lot of encouragement there for the believer. There's encouragement that, that no other religious system has, that sin is no longer master over you. But there is encouragement as well that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So I hope this lesson is encouraging to you guys. It's encouraging to me. It's very helpful for me. It tells me what I need to do. Um, it gives me very clear principles that I can use to measure my repentance. And I hope that's helpful for you guys as well. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you for each one of these men. I thank you for your goodness and grace to save us. Lord, it's by your design that you have left us in a mixed condition. And in that mixed condition, Lord, we will sin. And you require repentance from sin. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for each one of these men that you would grow us in our ability to walk in repentance from sin. Lord, I pray that each one of these, these characteristics of repentance would be encouraging to myself and to these men and would be instructive. And Lord, I pray that, that you would be pleased with us and that this church would be a stronger place as we, as men, repent biblically from sin. Thank you for your grace, Lord, that you've lavished upon us so that we can accomplish everything that you've given us to do. We rejoice that you gave us a Savior, and we pray in his name. Amen.